Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of April 20th, 2023. I'm Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Senator Bennett and Representative Pedersen hold community town hall at Red Rocks Community College by Olivia Jewell Love for the Jeffco Transcript. 365 Health brings health fairs to the metro area. Free and low-cost health screenings are available at local health fairs by Olivia Jewell Love for the Jeffco Transcript. It's not Mr. E, it's engineering. Mind students test skills, knowledge, in annual cardboard boat races by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Golden pursuing wristbands, more shuttles for Clear Creek this summer, traffic signal considered long-term solution for Ford Street Crossing by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. And Arvada Mayor Mark Williams to deliver his final State of the City on April 21st. Term Limited Mayor's final address to focus on honoring the past, imagining the future. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. And following up with various articles. Senator Bennett and Representative Pedersen hold Community Town Hall at Red Rocks Community College by Olivia Jewell Love. A community town hall turned into a lively conversation between elected officials and constituents about TikTok, immigration, and legislative priorities. Colorado U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and Colorado U.S. Representative Brittany Pedersen answered many questions and heard comments from constituents at their own at their town hall hosted at Red Rocks Community College on April 10th. Pedersen, a member of the freshman class of Congress, outlined some of her priorities, such as addressing the opioid epidemic, rising costs for families, workforce shortages, gun safety, and abortion legislation. Bennett stressed his commitment to mental health for youth and his support of SB 686, also known as the Restrict Act. This bill looks to restrict security threats that risk information through technology. The bill itself does not cite any specific app, but Bennett has been vocal about his disapproval of the Chinese-owned TikTok video app. The senator heard multiple comments from attendees about his strong stance against the popular app TikTok, but he maintained that he is concerned about many digital platforms. I'm deeply worried about what our own national digital platforms are doing to our teenage mental health, he said. He went on to say that TikTok is not the only offender in his eyes. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, owner of Meta, is regulated less than your average business in Jefferson County, and I think that's wrong, he said. The elected officials heard comments from constituents wondering what they are doing to secure the southern border, and both Bennett and Pedersen quickly rebuked the apparent xenophobia. Bennett explained to the crowd that one-third of the growth of Colorado's GDP over time has been from immigration. Illegal. Someone from the audience shouted as the senator spoke, quote, It's not illegal immigration, it's immigration over that period of time. There are serious economic consequences to deciding we aren't going to have a functional immigration system, Bennett replied. Bennett went on to discuss the circumstances that led to the election of former President Donald Trump, including that the former president stated, quote, Mexicans are rapists as part of his campaign for building a border wall. This remark led to the cries of dissent from members of the crowd saying, some saying he didn't mean that, he didn't say that. What he meant was, 
Bennett, in his passionate speech, responded directly to those defending the former president. Quote, that is what he said. Run the tape, Bennett said. 365 Health brings health fairs to the metro area. Free and low-cost health screenings are available at local health fairs. By Olivia Jewel Love. The 365 Health Community Health Fair is coming to multiple locations around the Denver metro area and offering free, low-cost health screenings. The health screenings vary at each fair, but can include blood pressure, vision, dental, stress, and more. Walk-up screenings are accepted, but registering ahead of time is recommended. Perhaps surprisingly, health care was largely ignored in the heights of the pandemic, with many people avoiding doctor's appointments, according to staff at 365 Health. Preventative health care and health care in general was kind of pushed to the side. Media representative Shane Ferraro said, We're really pushing people to get back into the practice of taking care of themselves. 365 Health is a nonprofit organization that has been largely volunteered, operated for over 40 years. Gary Drews, 365 Health CEO, explained what happens if someone gets abnormal results on a test at a health fair. If the person's result is out of range, then our staff calls the person within 48 hours and urges them to connect with their doctor. But many people in Colorado and across the country are uninsured and don't have primary care doctors. So Drews started a program to help. We started a low, low-cost telehealth program, he said. The program called Health in Hand offers telehealth primary care, psychiatry, women's health, and diabetes support for $80 a year, with no requirements for age, pre-existing conditions, or insurance. The service can be accessed 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Drew hopes the service can serve as a navigational tool to help people make informed healthcare decisions. Here are the dates and locations for the upcoming health fairs. Golden, when? 8 a.m. to noon, April 29th. Where? Rockland Community Church, 17 South Mount Vernon Country Club Road, Golden. Arvada, when? 7 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. April 22nd. Where? Arvada Covenant Church, 5555 Ward Road, Arvada. Lakewood. When? 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. April 23rd. Where? St. Cahetan's Catholic Parish, 4335 West Byers Place, Denver. Idaho Springs. When? 7.30 a.m. to noon, April 29th, where? Clear Creek Recreational Center, 98 12th Avenue, Idaho Springs. And Conifer, when? 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. May 6th, where? Our Lady of the Pines Catholic Church, 9444 Eagle Cliff Road, Conifer. It's not mystery, it's engineering. Mind students test skills, knowledge in annual cardboard boat races by Corinne Westerman. For months, Colorado School of Mind students have been collecting cardboard, everything from moving boxes and TV boxes to 24 packs of beer and pizza boxes in preparation for this day. On April 15th, hundreds of mine students, parents, faculty, and alumni, as well as Golden community members, lined both sides of the Clear Creek Whitewater Park, standing on their tiptoes and climbing on rocks to catch a glimpse of the next boat to sail or sink down the creek. Mine celebrated its 89th annual Engineering Days, or E-Days, this weekend, complete with an ore cart pull 
to the Capitol April 14th, and the iconic cardboard boat races April 15th. Students build boats made completely out of cardboard and duct tape. Some collapsed quickly, only making it through the first rapid, while others were still intact as the students heaved them into dumpsters. This year's E-Day's theme was Mystery, and several boating teams ran with the idea. They built mystery machines in themes from Scooby-Doo, Gravity Falls, Clue, and at least one Blue's Clues-inspired boat. Not everyone went for the Mr. E theme, though. Building boats inspired by Men in Black, Vikings, Ducks, Bubble Baths, Breaking Bad, and more. One team's boat had a table with the charcuterie, glasses, and a bottle of something bubbly that the students drank as they floated between the first two rapids. Overall, there were more than 100 entries across three hours Saturday morning. Many mind students participated for the first time this year, although they've watched before to get ideas. Some of the oddest boats make it. Sophomore Mariah Kernan said, recalling an octagon-shaped one last year. Conan's team, the Tavern, bottomed out about 50 feet from the finish line. The students estimated... They believed they could improve their design by not having as much surface area on the bottom. Conan and teammate Anna Hopper were happy they did it at least once, saying the races were something, quote, mine students could take pride in. If at first you don't succeed. While the Travern almost made it to the end, the Blaster Babes were among the teams that bottomed out quickly. Fernando Sandoval Garza, a junior in computer science, and his teammates estimated that they went about 10 feet total. They described spending too much time on the bottom of the creek, putting too much weight at the back of the boat, and accidentally ripping it. Eight people worked on the boat, but only three of them rode in it. Sandoval Garza and he said he planned to do it again for his senior year saying he and his teammates would be best served to start on it earlier in the year. The Serial Killers, whose boat's outer layer was Reese's Puffs boxes, said they'd been saving boxes since August. They ultimately made it about 80% of the way, including through two rapids. The four-person team built... It's boat with multiple layers. With junior Julian Reyes saying it was out of it was best to have laminated boxes as the outermost layer. He thought additional paddles might help next time, but thought the team did well. Nikki Bernay, a senior who's graduating with a mechanical engineering degree next month, and her four AIAA teammates made it about halfway down the creek. The boat started dragging, so two people had to get out and push it, she described. Bernoulli had wanted to do the boat races at least once before she graduated. She appreciated traditions around E-Days, saying she also did this year's ore cart pull. Reyes felt similarly about E-Days as a mind's tradition, saying it's, quote, the catalyst that holds it all together. He elaborated, saying E-Days serves as the core of the school year, and the boat races is the core of E-Days. It's very rewarding, Reyes continued. It's one weekend to test our skills and knowledge in a fun way. Golden Pursuing Wristbands, More Shuttles for Clear Creek this summer traffic signal considered long-term solution for Ford Street Crossing by Corinne Westerman. As Golden prepares for an influx of tubers along Clear Creek this summer, city officials are moving forward with a wristband-type concept for tubers on weekends and holidays and partnering with outfitters to provide additional shuttle service. These measures will collect more data on how many tubers are visiting what percentage are bringing their own tubes, how many trips they're taking, and more.
Carly Lorenz, deputy city manager, said staff members haven't finalized what the wristband strategy will look like, explaining that Golden could pursue wristbands for individual tubers or stickers for the tubes themselves. City also doesn't have firm plans for expanding shuttle services right now, she added, but the goal is to reduce the number of tubers on the trail. One outfitter operated a shuttle last summer with ample participation, and the city could either help expand the existing shuttles and or provide its own, Lorenz described. Because so many details are up in the air right now, she didn't have an estimate on costs. City staff has been working with a $35,000 figure to implement the wristbands or stickers, with Lorenz saying that Golden already had some money budgeted for 2023 Creek management. Over the winter, city officials and community members have been discussing whether additional measures are needed to help manage Clear Creek visitation this summer. The city's heard a variety of feedback about the corridor, and Lawrence noted that Golden may adjust some of these strategies partway through the summer. However, she said, the goal remains the same. Ensure all Clear Creek visitors have the best possible experience. During the April 11th City Council work session, Lorenz and other staff members asked for the councillor's input about shuttle services, wristbands, and the Ford Creek crossing over the creek. For each topic, staff provided options that range from significant change to no change. Regarding shuttle services and wristbands, most councillors felt it would be worthwhile to implement some changes along the creek this summer to collect data. Longer term, they believe the data could help calculate the creek's capacity and whether Golden may have to restrict tubing to a certain level to avoid overuse. We know it's not going to be perfect, City Manager Scott Vargo said of collecting data, but it's going to give us a lot more information and a variety of information. Councilors Rob Reed and Bill Fisher were among those who believed managing Clear Creek visitation was a significant enough issue to make investments and collect the data. I think wristbands make sense as a trial, Fisher said. This would hopefully give us a sense of where the congestion points are, where the tubers are coming from, and where they're going. Ford Street Crossing. Most counselors also wanted to pursue the significant change option for the Ford Street Crossing, which would be a $150,000 traffic signal. The other options were keeping the seasonal crossing guards or installing a flashing pedestrian signal there. Lorenz said this crossing becomes difficult to manage during high volume times as people continuously walk across, causing motorists to back up along Ford Street as they wait for a break in pedestrian traffic. The $150,000 traffic signal isn't a done deal yet. Lorenz later clarified, saying staff will research it more this year. The city would need to budget the traffic signal as a capital improvement project, and staff also wanted to align its installment with upgrading the traffic signal at 10th and Ford Street. The councilors also wanted to ensure the signals at the 10th Street intersection and the Ford Street crossing were coordinated, so one wouldn't cause congestion at the other. Rather than installing a costly traffic signal, Some counselors discussed trying to change people's behavior by either crossing Ford Street under the bridge and or crossing at 10th Street. Lorenz said staff will be looking at a variety of options while pursuing the traffic signal, saying the city could do a combination of things to mitigate congestion along Ford Street. In the meantime, Lorenz said, Golden will likely have crossing guards on Ford Street this summer. For more information or to leave a comment for this city, visit guidinggolden.com slash clear-creek-management-strategies.
Arvada Mayor Mark Williams to deliver his final State of the City on April 21st. Term limited mayor's final address to focus on honoring the past, imagining the future by Riley Dunn. After 24 years as public official in Arvada, outgoing mayor Mark Williams will deliver his final state of the city address at 7:30 a.m. April 21st at Revive Church at the bridge. The speech is themed honoring the past, imagining the future and we'll look at the ways Arvada has changed during Williams' tenure. Williams, an attorney by day, was first elected to Arvada's city council as an at-large candidate in 1999. He was twice re-elected to that position before running a successful campaign to become Arvada's 34th mayor in 2011. He was again re-elected twice, once in 2015 and a final time in 2019. Now term limited, this year marks Williams' last as Arvada's mayor. Known for his colorful suits and sometimes even more colorful commentary, Williams typically takes the State of the City address as an opportunity to reflect on the past year in Arvada. Yet this year, he said, he's changing the script. Traditionally, I've talked about the last year, but this year I want to reflect on my whole 24 years on council. Williams said, the citizens, city team, and city councils have to have worked together to really bring us to this point in time. They've taken challenges we've had, opportunities we've had, and successfully, for the most part, I'd say, delivered to our citizens and our community what we have today. Williams said the milestone is bittersweet and added that he worked with the city team to put together this year's presentation which will have a multimedia component. He concluded by saying that he feels like it's time to pass the post on. It's inspiring and bittersweet at the same time, Williams said. When I asked the city team to go back and pull some data over what's happened over the last 24 years, it brought back lots of memories. It made me very proud of what our city has done in that time frame and the feeling that it's time for me to pass the gavel belong to someone else. William's successor as mayor will be elected in November. John Marriott, currently the council member representing District 3, is the only candidate that has filed for the race as of April 12th. The State of the City Address is organized by the Arvada Chamber of Commerce. What you need to know in Jefferson County, Earth Day, RTD, Art, and more. By Joe Davis. From art displays and planned Earth Day festivities to making public comments on RTD, here's what you need to know in Jefferson County this week. Kyra de Groy Kennedy announces State House District 30 campaign. The 2024 election for the open State House District 30 seat is now a three-way competition. Kyra de Gruy Kennedy recently announced her candidacy with a video introduction. Check it out at her Kyra for Colorado campaign page. We Cycle in need of donations. We Cycle, W-E-E, is in desperate need of donations. The organization collects donations of gently used clothing, equipment, diapers, wipes, and baby food for families in the community. It's now time to restock some high-demand items, and you can help. Bring your gently used cribs, manufactured in 2012 or newer, strollers, bassinets, pack-and-plays, baby monitors, humidifiers, safety gates, and car seats. To one of the organization's pop-up gear collection events, happening through April 24th. See WeCycle's website for more information. New exhibits up at the Lakewood Cultural Center. Artist Daniel Kelly's Blind Visionaries exhibit is up at the Lakewood Cultural Center. It is a multimedia project that also has a musical performance-based element.
You can view the art at the Lakewood Cultural Center free of charge, but you will need tickets for the performances. The final performance is on April 21st. Get tickets and find out more on the Lakewood Cultural Center website. Mosaic Artists Nearing End of Exhibit The Colorado Mosaic Artists are on the final week of their month-long exhibit, Sustainable Mosaics. The Lakewood Arts Gallery describes the exhibit as their latest work built with found or recycled material. New art, which changes things from trash to treasure in the eye of the beholder. Can't make it? The Lakewood Gallery has linked a virtual walkthrough. Earth Day Celebrations The City of Lakewood's Earth Day Celebration will cover the full day on April 22nd and will include an electric vehicle ride and drive. Story time, courtesy of the Jeffco Public Library, Nature Walks, dancers, food, and so much more. Get more details at lakewood.org slash earthday. Jefferson County Open Spaces is celebrating Earth Day by giving some TLC to Welchester Tree Grant Park, and the community is invited to help. On April 22nd, join others as the staff leads groups on trails and around the space. The education will be hands-on as the volunteers work, to maintain grand grounds and the habitat. The event is described as, quote, a way to protect wildlife and continue to provide healthy and safe nature-based experiences to our visitors. For more information, check out the Jeffco Open Spaces website. Register online at Spaces Limited. Speaking of electric vehicles... The Colorado Energy Office approved a grant to place charging stations for electric vehicles in Jefferson County Park's parking lots. The funding will support the installation of five Level 2 dual-port EV charging stations on property owned by Jefferson County. Two charging stations will be installed for public access at popular county-managed parks, and three will be installed for internal fleet use on county property in Lakewood. The grant brings the county one step closer to fulfilling the Climate Action Plan approved a year ago by the Board of County Commissioners. Get details on the, on the project and the plan on the Climate Action Plan website. Got comments for RTD? The Regional Transport District has opened its public comment period on proposed policy changes, which, according to the RTD, include, quote, a recommended new fare structure. Policies and programs intended to create a fare system that is more equitable, affordable, and simple. Anyone from the public can review the changes at RTD's FAIR Feedback website, F-A-R-E, and leave a comment. The public comment period ends. May 22nd. And the Sustainability Awards. It's time for the annual Jefferson County Sustainability Awards. Every year, the awards are meant, quote, to acknowledge and celebrate environmental stewardship and sustainability efforts made by organizations, employees, students, and residents in Jefferson County. Anyone in the community can submit nominations by April 26th. Go to the Jefferson County Board of Com County Commissioners website for more information and to submit a nomination. Sitting Bull Portrait Sells at Auction to Private Bidder by Sandra Hale Schulman, ICT. The rare portrait of Lakota leader Sitting Bull that was up for sale at Blackwell Auctions sold for $67,100 in mid-March to a private purchaser from the northeastern United States. The portrait was one of four paintings of Sitting Bull created by New York artist and activist Caroline Weldon, and is thought to be the only one still in private hands. Stored for decades and needing repair, the solemn portrait of the charismatic Lakota leader was consigned to auction by heirs of the original owner 
from 1890. The artist's friendship with Sitting Bull was made into a 2017 film, Woman Walks Ahead. I just tried to promote it as best I could, Blackwell auctioneer Edwin Bailey told ICT. I knew that it was a very special piece, and the story was absolutely fascinating. The deeper I got into it, I watched the movie and co contacted the historical researchers. Bailey says the painting was special because it is, quote, vastly superior to the other two Weldon painted. The value of the painting was based on its subject matter and its dramatic history, not the popularity of the artist or broad demand for the artist's work, which is usually what drives the value of a piece of art. Daniel Gugesberg, historian and researcher, told ICT that the portrait was not done from a sitting, one of several revisions to the story that was portrayed in the 2017 film featuring Jessica Chastain as Weldon and Michael Greyeyes as Sitting Bull. Quote, it is based on a portrait made by photographers Palmquist and Jurgens of Minneapolis in March 1884, Gugesberg said. The other two known paintings of Sitting Bull she made are based on photographs, notably by William Notman and son of Montreal, taken in August 1885, while Sitting Bull toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West. She did not paint from life, would not have the means to do so, and Sitting Bull certainly would not have agreed to sit for a painted portrait for hours or days on end. Caroline Weldon certainly had artistic talents, but not beyond an amateur's level, end quote. Weldon went to see Sitting Bull, 1831 to 1890, in the late 1880s to help him politically, not to paint him. She ended up staying and moving into his camp at the Standing Rock Reservation with his family. Gugesberg said that, quote, the painting presumably was made while Caroline Weldon had briefly returned to Brooklyn in the latter part of 1889 and early 1890. The date on the painting is 1890. Weldon is believed to have sold the painting to the man whose heirs recently put it up for auction. As far as I know, no painting by Caroline Weldon has ever sold at auction, Gugesberg said. While the story in the film was greatly changed, even without the motion picture, I still think this would have been an amazing piece because of the story. Bailey said Weldon endured a lot of heat, even physical violence, for promoting Native rights in the late 1800s. Bailey said he started the bids on March 18th at $20,000 and said the final sales figure was reached in about two minutes. It didn't have any bids on it to start with. Advanced bids, pre-op option bids, he said. There were several people that just got on where the option started, and it ran to where it ran. That's one of those pieces that could have gone anywhere. Bailey said the seller is granddaughter of William Lafayette Darling, a railroad engineer from St. Paul that was involved in the construction of the Northern Pacific Line at the time that went through the Dakotas, on to Montana and Idaho. He is believed to have purchased the painting from Weldon. When he died in 1938, the painting went to his daughter, and then to her daughter, in 1990. The painting will soon be shipped to the new owner. We've been in touch with the buyer, and it's been hanging up here on the wall for several weeks now, he said. I'm looking at it right now. Bailey said the auction house does not release details about the buyer. I can say that they're in no the Northeast, and I hope they loan or exhibit it, he said. It's not something I can even fathom somebody just poking down a hallway and looking at once in a while. I just don't see that happening. I think it's going to show up again, and I think it's going to show up at a museum, perhaps by a private collector. The best I'll say is that is what I hope is the outcome. Sandra Hale Schulman of Cherokee Nation Descent has been writing about Native issues since 1994.
Native American students' right to wear regalia at graduation in Colorado Bill. Danielson co-sponsors Bill by Jason Gonzalez, Chalkbeat. Colorado would guarantee the rights of Native American students to wear items such as eagle feathers and other traditional clothing at graduation ceremonies through a bill under consideration this year. Federal law protects Native American religious and cultural rights, but students sometimes run into issues or find flat-out prohibition at schools when it comes to wearing regalia at ceremonies, advocates say. They say families must then fight to make districts aware of the importance of traditional clothing. Or students running into a lack of understanding might help, might choose to skip graduation ceremonies altogether. Senate Bill 202 would ensure K-12 schools, colleges, and universities create policies to protect Native American students so they don't run into issues. Senator Jesse Danielson, a Wheat Ridge Democrat and co-sponsor of the bill, said she's heard of school officials telling students they have to hide, remove, or even throw away regalia because of policies that maintain uniformity at graduations. She said some students have even reported school officials touched or confiscated students' eagle feathers, a cultural and religious symbol. Quote, This bill clarifies for the school that you do not interfere with this, Danielson said. You cannot harass these students and prevent them from wearing their traditional regalia. Schools asking Native American students to remove or throw away items is like a school asking a student to get rid of a Jewish or Christian symbol, said Melvin Baker, Southern Ute Tribal Council Chairman, during a mid-April hearing. He added that the United States has a history of trying to erase Native American culture, and the bill would ensure students get there to honor their identity and their achievement. Tribal regalia plays a unique role for graduating Native students, Baker said. These items are often gifted to students by parents or tribal elders in recognition of this achievement. The Native American Rights Fund receives many calls every spring from families across the country looking for supports on how to ensure that they can wear regalia at graduation ceremonies, said Matthew Campbell, the organization's deputy director. It's been a few years since he fielded a call from Colorado families, but he said families do sometimes run into trouble with schools. Usually when we reach out to the schools and explain the importance of these items, once they understand, they usually will allow them to be worn, Campbell said. In recent years, some states have added outing have added teachings about Native American religion and culture. Other changes that try to create more respect toward Native American culture have happened, including a, a law Colorado passed last year that bans Native American mascots. Colorado would join eight other states in ensuring Native American students can wear traditional regalia. Senator Sonia Yaquez Luiz, a longtime Longmont Democrat co-sponsoring the legislation, said the goal is to make sure that every Colorado district understands. The bill defines qualifying students as members of a tribe, eligible tribal members, or those of Native American descent. The bill says that immediate family members would also be allowed to wear traditional Native American dress during their student's graduation ceremony. Speakers at a Senate Education Committee hearing said traditional dress might include clothing, bracelets, necklaces, or eagle feathers. The bill needs a final vote in the Senate before heading to the House. The bill doesn't say how schools will ensure students have the right to wear traditional items, Yaquez Lewis said. We leave the details up to the school districts and the schools, but what we do in this bill is we set guardrails, she said. Some districts have started to create policies. Cherry Creek School District has created a ceremony for Native American students in working on graduation ceremony policies, said Aspen Rendon, a partner with the district's Department of Equity, Culture, and Cultural Engagement. Community Engagement. 
The district also has an Indigenous Action Committee working toward creating a more inclusive district, Rendon said. Jeffrey Chavez, the district's Indigenous and Native Student Community Liaison, said it's important to recognize Native traditions, especially in urban districts like Cherry Creek. Ensuring students get to wear their regalia at ceremonies helps carry on traditions. That's how we honor ourselves and our community and family with those traditions, he said. Indigenous Action Committee member Donna Chris John said a principal didn't allow her son in 2020 to wear Native American regalia at his graduation ceremony. Her son ended up not participating in the ceremony. She's glad the district is changing and happy to have helped make lawmakers aware of the issue. Quote, This is so impactful for all families to know that someone will not push back when their child decides that they want to show up as who they really are. Chris John said, that's a huge step in the right direction, end quote. Chalkbeat is a nonprofit news site covering education change in public schools. Gun violence hits 40-year high in Colorado. Death rates also high. By John Ingold, The Colorado Sun. In the spring of 2019, as the state mourned the shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch and lawmakers began eyeing a raft of new firearms-related legislation, the Colorado Sun analyzed 38 years of state data on gun deaths. At the time, the Sun found that 20,669 people died from firearm-related injuries between 1980 and 2018. And the death rate, after dipping in the early 2000s, was on the rise. Now, with the reverberations from a shooting at Denver's East High School still ringing and lawmakers again hotly debating a slate of gun bills, the Sun decided to revisit that earlier analysis. The number of those who have died from firearm-related injuries has increased, of course. Between 1980 and 2021, the most recent year for which finalized mortality data is available, 23,493 people were killed by gunshot wounds, according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. But more surprising is that the firearm-related death rate in 2021 was the highest since at least 1980. The new analysis shows the state recorded 18.2 gun deaths per 100,000 people in 2021, far exceeding any other year in that time span. The previous high was in 1981 at 16.3 deaths per 100,000 people. These numbers include all deaths caused by firearms, homicides, suicides, accidents, and incidents where the intent cannot be determined. Though still preliminary, the firearm-related death rate appears to have declined slightly in 2022. The state will likely have final data on 2022 deaths next month, and it is possible that the preliminary figure, 16.8 deaths per 100,000 people, could rise as more deaths are officially recorded. The reason we stop the analysis at 1980 is because that's how far back CDPHE has data on firearm-specific causes of death. The state does have data on suicides going back to 1940 and homicides back to 1970. But because those numbers do not record whether a gun was involved in the deaths, they are not comparable to post-1980 numbers. Gun deaths are increasing across most age groups in the state. The only age group where a trend is difficult to discern is for children from birth through age 9. Deaths in that age range can be few enough in a given year that CDPHE won't release the actual numbers. It is common in health statistics for small numbers to be withheld for privacy reasons. 
This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Bill addresses water quality at mobile home parks. A look at HB 1257 by Heather Sackett, Aspen Journalism. State legislatures have introduced a bill that would create a water twist testing program at mobile home parks, addressing residents' longstanding concerns about water quality. House Bill 1257, which is sponsored by District 57 Representative Elizabeth Velasco, Democrat Garfield County, would require the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to create a water testing program that covers all mobile home parks in the state by 2028. If the testing finds a water quality issue, the park owner must come up with a remediation plan and not pass the cost of fixing the problem on to residents. The testing results would be made available to park residents and the public in English, Spanish, and other languages. The bill would also require park owners to identify the water source and establish a grant program to help park owners pay for remediation options, such as infrastructure upgrades. The bill was introduced March 26th, and its other sponsors are Representative Andrew Bozenecker, Democrat of Larimer County, and Senator Lisa Cutter, Democrat of Jefferson County. Velasco, who said she lived in a mobile home parks growing up, said she has heard complaints from residents about discolored water that stains clothes, smells, and tastes bad, causes skin rashes, and breaks appliances. But often, those complaints go unaddressed, because the water may still meet the standards of the Environmental Protection Agency's Safe Drinking Water Act. Quote, The odor, the taste, the color, those are secondary traits of the water, according to these regulations, Velasco said. These issues are in low-income communities, majority people of color. These issues are not happening to wealthy families. Environmental justice issue. Water quality in mobile home parks is an environmental justice issue for the Latino community. According to the Colorado Latino Climate Justice Policy Handbook, nearly 20% of Latino households live in mobile homes. And according to survey results in the 2022 Colorado Latino Policy Agenda, 41% of mobile home residents said they do not trust or drink the water in their homes. 80% of survey respondents said they support new regulations requiring that mobile home parks provide their residents with clean drinking water. Beatriz Soto is executive director of Protegete, a Latino-led environmental initiative of Conservation Colorado that developed the Climate Justice Handbook. Conservation Colorado supports the bill. Soto, who also lived in mobile home parks in the Roaring Fork Valley, said for years she has heard the same complaints Velasco did about water quality, so she knew it was a top priority for the Latino community. The survey results confirmed the anecdotes. This is not just little things we are hearing here and there in the community. This is a bigger issue. Soto said, when you work two jobs and you have to drive two hours to work and you come home and have to go to a laundromat because you can't wash your clothes at your residence, there's a real cumulative impact of living under those conditions. The Aspen to Parachute region has 55 parks, which combined have about 3,000 homes and 15,000 to 20,000 residents. Mobile home parks are some of the last neighborhoods of non-subsidized affordable housing left in the state and provide crucial worker housing, especially in rural and resort areas. Residents have complained about the water quality in some parks for years, 
but agencies have lacked the regulatory authority to enforce improvements. Recently, residents in parks near Durango and in Summit County have lacked running water for weeks at a time. Voces Unidas de las Montanas, a Latino-led advocacy nonprofit that is based in Colorado's Central Mountains and works in the Roaring Fork Valley, is one of the organizations leading clean water for all Colorado, a committee that helped to craft the legislation. Many of us who grew up in mobile home parks, myself included, have always known and normalized buying bottled water from the store, and it's because we don't trust our water said Alex Sanchez, president and CEO of Voces Unidas. Many residents have been complaining and calling for action for decades, and no one has answered their call, end quote. Sanchez said the bill is his organization's number one legislative priority this session. Rocky Mountain Home Association and Colorado Manufactured Housing Coalition opposed the bill. Tony Payton executive director of the Rocky Mountain Home Association, said the mobile home park industry has been bombarded with sweeping law changes in recent years, causing confusion and additional operation and legal costs. Laws enacted in 2019, 2020, and 2022 granted extra protections to mobile home park residents. Quote, the Rocky Mountain Home Association is concerned with the entire bill, Peyton said in an email. Why is the mobile home park industry being singly targeted with this legislation? Industry was not made aware that the mobile home park water quality was such an issue that a 23-page page bill was warranted. Bill proponents acknowledge that the issue may take years to get resolved and that new regulations would be just the first step toward gathering data and assessing the problem. This is just a first stab at trying to resolve this issue, Soto said. This is establishing a framework to start testing and get all the information and documenting all the water sources for mobile home parks to determine what is the problem. House Bill 1257 is scheduled for a hearing by the Transportation, Housing, and Local Governments Committee on Wednesday. Aspen Journalism is a nonprofit newsroom reporting on water, environments, and social justice. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.